Good morning. Wherever you are, whether you're here at Botany uh, live or watching this in Hastings, kia ora to you guys, or watching or listening to this on the internet, it's awesome to have you with us. This morning at Botany, we have just sung the song, This I Believe, by Hillsong. And I didn't realise until I researched it this week, uh, I'd asked for that song to be sung before we jumped into God's Word this morning, um, but I hadn't realised the full backstory. I knew some of the backstory behind that song, but one of my favourite um, Christian authors to come out of Australia is an Anglican minister by the name of Dr John Dixon. And he's written some very cool apologetic stuff, especially around the evidence of Jesus. He's an historian by training. And um, I really love the way he writes and, and the direction he brings. And I hadn't realised, but as I researched that song this week, what I discovered is that John Dixon was the guy who came up with the idea. So some years ago, he put on Twitter a challenge to Hillsong and said, hey, Hillsong, why don't you take the Apostles' Creed, which is this ancient statement of faith that churches have used for almost the last 2,000 years. It probably came about around 200 AD, but it's, you know, it's getting close to 2,000 years old. Why don't you put that to music? And I knew that a challenge had been put out to Hillsong that they'd responded to. I hadn't realised it was actually um, from this particular pastor and author that I particularly like. Here's what John Dixon said about the challenge that he put out there. He said, I just thought a song that really was reminiscent of the Apostles' Creed that covered its main points would be a beautiful way of calling modern churches to reflect on the foundation of the faith that unifies us. And so that's what Hillsong did. They picked up that challenge and they wrote the song and, and composed the music that we have just sung today. And it's based on this ancient creed, this ancient statement of faith. There's a number of creeds that come from the ancient church, anything from around 100 through to about 500 AD. There was a number of these statements that um, early Christians wrote as a way of kind of reflecting on the core parts of our faith. Some of them were voted on by particular church councils, and so there's a, this is the creed that they voted on and approved. Others, like the Apostles' Creed, there was never a definitive, like, this is the creed. There's a few different versions that float around, and today there's one or two modern versions that people use that Hillsong based that song on. Today, though, I want to introduce you to a slightly older version of the Apostles' Creed, and we normally don't do this in our kind of church. This is more liturgical churches that use these creeds, but I'd like to say the creed together today. So if you're at Botany, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. Uh, if you're at Hastings in Harataki and Shona's Lounge, I want to invite you to stand to your feet as well. If you're driving the car listening to this, don't stand. That would be dangerous. Um, but it's, the words are up on the screen here, and uh, let's, let's say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And you can be seated. 
Did you hear the words of the song, though, that we've just sung coming through? This is the creed that Hillsong based that song on, this I believe. And I used a, a slightly older version. This version is dated from around 700 AD. I updated a couple of the words just to help us understand. If you'd said he will come to judge the quick and the dead, you would have thought, what on earth? What about the slow? Um, it was actually means the living and the dead. But this, I, I chose this ancient version rather than the more modern versions of the Apostles' Creed that, that some churches would use in their worship today because there's a particular line on the previous slide that I want to just stop at and pause at for a minute. And it's this one I've highlighted in yellow. You just pronounced today, he descended into hell. And I don't think you should have said that. I did as well, by the way, so you're not in trouble. But there was a line that came into the, the Apostles' Creed around 6700 AD that said he descended into hell, and a whole line of thinking grew around this idea that after he died, Jesus' spirit descended to hell and either preached the gospel to people there or rescued believers from the Old Testament or beat up Satan or did something there before he was resurrected again. I personally don't buy that, and I don't think it actually makes sense biblically, um, because Jesus said it is finished on the cross, so he'd paid the penalty for sin on the cross. He didn't need to go to hell here. He endured hell already on the cross, and he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So I'm not sure that this doctrine really makes sense. The reason I'm raising that today is because one of the two probably key passages that people who advocate for this use is from First Peter. And so we are coming up to, in our series in First Peter that we're in, in this whole year of loving right where we are, we come to a, a really key and really tough passage in the letter that Peter wrote. So if you have a Bible, I would like you to come with me to First Peter chapter 3, and we are looking at the last five verses of this chapter this morning. So if you've got a paper Bible, great. If you've got a phone with a, the Version app on it, awesome. Um, it would be really helpful if you have a Bible in front of you today because this morning we are looking at quite possibly the toughest passage in the entire New Testament to understand. Um, so this is going to be hard yakka. I've been praying fervently all week. Um, but we're into a very, very difficult passage. And so I want to read it and then I want to dive in. So First Peter chapter 3 and we're looking at verses 18 to 22. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Okay, whew. In it, only a few people ate and all were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism. Okay, that now saves you also. Oh, hello. Not from the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Right, everyone clear on that? I kind of feel like closing in prayer at this point and just saying amen. Um, it's funny, as I was researching this particular one, I came across Martin Luther, who we talked about last year in a series on the Reformation. And Luther wrote, this is a strange text, 
and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament, I still do not know for sure what the apostle means. <laughs> and if you know, if you were listening for that series last year, you will know Martin Luther was very strong on a whole bunch of things. He was not, uh, uh, didn't find it hard to come to a conclusion on something. Um, this passage, he's saying, oh my goodness, I have no clue. The irony is that in his second letter, which we call Second Peter in our Bible, here's what Peter wrote. Uh, talking about whatever doctrine it was, just as our dear brother Paul wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them in these matters. But you know what? Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. <laughs> and, and, uh, it's slightly a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black, you know? It's kind of like, uh, Peter, I don't think you've got a right to kind of nail Paul for the way he explains stuff. But anyway... I want to dive into what honestly is one of the most, if not the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament to get our heads around. And I want to try and walk our way through it, because I think if I can explain it clearly, I think this is actually uh, incredibly powerful, uh, what this passage is actually saying, if I'm understanding it right. And so the caveat is, uh, I think I've got this, but I'm not super confident because there's heaps of alternatives. So anyway, let's jump in. Very, very important to begin is that we start with the first word. So the first word in verse 18 is the word for. The previous verse in the previous section that Steve preached through last week, Peter finished with this conclusion in verse 17. It is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. It's better to suffer for doing good. Now most normal people who don't like suffering, like me, and probably you, would go, ah, Peter, are you sure that it's better to suffer? I would have thought it was better not to suffer at all. But Peter's arguing it's better to suffer. Then he says in verse 18, in our passage, for, because. So our passage is a, the reason why he has said what he said in the previous passage, all right? So that's, that's going to be important later on. So what we're looking at now, this passage, he's saying, this, let, let me give you the reason why it's better to suffer for doing good. Because, he says, Christ also suffered. Now, he's done this already. Back in chapter 1, he did this. He talked about living reverent lives before God, and he said, because Christ has redeemed us. He's already used Jesus as an example. And then in chapter 2, writing to slaves, he said, submit to masters, even if you don't deserve to be ill-treated. You do good as slaves. Why? Well, because Jesus did. Jesus is our example. So he's already used Jesus as our example twice, and now he's using Jesus again as our example. It's better for us to suffer for doing good. We should even um, be prepared to suffer living attractive and beautiful lives for Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus did too. So he's our example, all right? So that's the key idea that, that Peter is doing here. Now, if we leave out those middle chunks that are quite difficult and just put them to the side for a minute... The rest of the passage is actually relatively easy to follow. Peter says, Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, he was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, we'll leave out the difficult ones for a minute, he went into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Right, so if we leave out the hard verses for a minute and just go, what are the clear bits saying? 
They're telling us about a series of steps that Jesus took. Three key verbs in here. Let me highlight them for you. He was put to death. He was made alive. And he is now at God's right hand. That clear? So that, that bit's easy to follow, I think. But what that does is it gives us the basic structure of this passage and how it's working. It's the crucifixion, Jesus died. The resurrection, Jesus rose. And the ascension, Jesus is now enthroned. And that's the basic storyline or the basic movement of this particular passage. And that, I think, if we can understand that, that actually helps us immensely when we get to the hard verses to try and understand what on earth Peter was actually saying. Uh, one commentator that was really helpful on this particular passage, Dr. Karen Jobes, she writes this, these three participles, which are verbs that we translate with an ing on the end, like doing, shopping, drinking, coffee, you know, it's ing verbs. That's what a participle is. She says, these three participles form a series. Christ was put to death, he was made alive, and then he went. And then she says, after the intervening verses, which we've put aside for a minute, the participle went is repeated again in verse 22. It's repeated resumptively to refer to the ascension. Now, almost, I don't think it matters which English translation you're using, it probably in verse 22, you'll see whatever translation you use in English, he has gone into heaven. That word gone is the same word went from verse 19. That's what she's saying. So she's saying there's three key verbs. He was put, he was, yeah, put to death, made alive, and then he went. And went is picked up again in verse 22 to talk about the ascension. So she's saying it's these three elements, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, all right? So that's the basic structure. So before we get into the hard verses, let's look at verse 18, which is a little bit easier to grapple with, where Peter talks about Jesus died. And what Peter does here is he underlines four key things about the death of Jesus. First of all, he talks about the anguish of his death. He says, Christ suffered. Now, some English translations use have the word died here. And in fact, earlier versions of the NIV, which is the translation I like, earlier versions of the NIV had died. But this latest version and some other English translation, I think, are right to say Christ suffered. A, because that's what's in verse 17 immediately beforehand. That it's, it's better if it's God's will that we suffer for doing good. We suffer for living good lives for him. Why? Well, because Christ suffered. It links our suffering with his suffering. But it also points to the reality that his death on our behalf, Jesus' death on the cross, was no minor event. In fact, the irony is, if you go back to Mark's gospel, which many scholars believe Peter was actually the one motivating and helping Mark to write that, when Jesus in the Mark's gospel begins to predict um, that he will die soon, um, this is the way Mark puts it in Mark 8. Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man himself must suffer. There's, there's the same word. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke them. I mean, the audaciousness of... Peter was the only one of the disciples who felt like he could just pull Jesus aside and sort him out. But the irony is that for Peter, 
The thought of a suffering Messiah was something he could never get his mind around. 30 years later, as this old man now writes to these other new Christians, he, he's actually celebrating the suffering of Jesus. This idea that Jesus suffered for us actually becomes a key part of his theology of the cross, his understanding of what Jesus has done for us. So that's the anguish of it. Second thing that Peter underlines is the finality of Jesus' death. He died once for sins. And that means once for all time is kind of the idea. That Jesus paid the penalty on the cross for my sins and your sins once, and he dealt with all of our sins forever. And that is repeated time and time again through the New Testament. Just one example, Hebrews 9, uh, Christ appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of, him, of himself. By the way, what that means is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith and trust in him, he has paid for every mistake, every error, every sin, everything you have ever and will ever do wrong. There is full and complete forgiveness at the cross. And so we never get to a point where we've sinned too much. If we're followers of Christ, we can never get to the moment where we've used up his grace or gone too far or, or run uh, too much or, or messed up too often or too big. We can't ever get there because he has paid for it all once for all time. That's why on the cross, the moment before Jesus actually gave up his spirit, he said, it is finished. It's done. It's fully paid. And that means if you're a follower of Jesus, you rest in his grace and the full payment for sin that stands underneath the forgiveness we have. Third thing that Peter underlines about the death of Jesus is the idea within his death of substitution that the righteous suffered for the unrighteous or in our place. And what we don't see in our English translations but is in, in the Greek text is that righteous is singular and unrighteous is plural. So it's that the righteous one suffered for the unrighteous many. Which means that for all of us, he is our substitute. For every one of us who place our faith and trust in Jesus, he becomes our substitute. He took our place. He paid for our sin. He took our judgment. He was the lamb who died so that we wouldn't have to. And that idea of substitution is key to the way that the New Testament talks about the cross and what Jesus has done for us. And so Peter's underlining all of this in verse 18. The, the anguish of Christ and his suffering, the finality of his death, the idea of the substitutionary atonement that he took my place. And then finally, he underlines the result of this is that this is what brings us to God. We can't be made right with God on our own merits. We can't become right with God based on our good works or our good efforts. We don't get right with God by, by reading a Bible or coming to church or praying a certain number of times. It doesn't rest on us. The only way we can come into a relationship with our God who we have rebelled against and turned away from as sinners is by walking hand in hand with Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings us to God. And so when we put our faith in him, the one who took our place and paid for our sins, he brings us to his Father. 
And it's because of him that we are loved and accepted and forgiven and welcomed and given a relationship with the Father both in this life and in the life to come. All of that is wrapped up just in verse 18. And I don't want us to miss that because we're so uh, going to be so caught up in what comes next. What Peter is saying is that at the crucifixion, Jesus died as our perfect substitute. And that's a key beginning place for this passage. We can suffer for doing good. We can endure some persecution, some hassling, some, uh, some other stuff from people because Christ suffered for us in a perfect way. So that's the crucifixion. Jesus died. Then we come to this tough part of the passage. And what we need to understand is that this comes in to the middle section of this about the resurrection. Jesus not only died, Jesus rose. Now, if you've got your Bible here, I want you to, to, to see this. The end of verse 18 is where this begins. Peter said all he wanted to say about the, the wonder of the death of Jesus. And then he says at the end of verse 18, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. All right? So spirit in the NIV is capitalized. It could be small s spirit. So in the realm of the, of, of the spirit rather than the flesh, or it could be the Holy Spirit. I, I tend to think it's the Holy Spirit, so I like the way the NIV's done that. The key thing is, is those two key ideas. He was put to death, and then he was made alive. So here's what we need to understand. As we come to this really tough part of this passage that is really hard to grapple with, we need to understand that it's in the context of this point in this three-part series. This whole passage, Peter's going, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is now enthroned and exalted. So this tough bit comes in this middle section. Jesus rose. That's what he said at the end of verse 18. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. And now we come to verse 19. And after being made alive, or in which is the literal translation, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. What on earth is going on here? There's four key questions we have to answer to grapple with this text. Where did Jesus go? It says he went. So where did he go? When did he go there? To whom did he speak? And what did he say? What did he declare? Now, I don't know mathematically how many permutations you can have with four questions. But this passage is so complex that there's minute answers to each of those to the point that one commentator I read this week said there is 180 different ways to understand this passage. That's why scholars say this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament. So I'm going to walk through all 180 with you this morning. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm going to show you the three main ones. Make it easier. There's one school of thought that says what this passage is saying is that between the death and the resurrection of Jesus, so Easter Saturday, if you want to think of it that way, Jesus descended to hell, as the ancient Apostles' Creed said, and he preached the gospel to people in hell. Either, to offer, some people say, to offer them salvation, a second chance to believe, or others say, no, nah, that doesn't even happen, but Jesus went to hell and proclaimed his victory. But either way, it's between his death and his resurrection. Okay? 
The second view is that actually the whole reference to Noah is talking about way back in Genesis, Jesus basically preached through Noah to the people of Noah's day. The third one is that at his resurrection, Jesus announced his victory over the demonic powers. So out of the four questions, I think that second one is the most important. When did whatever happens in this verse, when did that happen? I think that actually helps us get the most traction. And that's why I'm stressing the way that this passage works. Because if it's Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus enthroned, and we've already got to the fact Jesus rose, I don't think suggestion number one works. Because if that was the case, Peter would have left the resurrection of Jesus to later. He would have gone, Jesus died for us, and then he went and, and, and proclaimed to the spirits, wherever they are, whoever they are, whatever he said, and then Jesus rose. That's not how Peter's done it. He said, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and went and proclaimed. So I think whatever this is going on here, and whoever this is, and whatever Jesus is saying, he's risen. So I don't think number one works. Number two, I don't think works either. Because Peter doesn't say Jesus went and proclaimed long ago. It says Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits who were imprisoned long ago. So I don't think view two works either. So what I'm arguing, and I'm speeding this whole thing up so you don't have to read the other 177 options, I think what Peter's saying is number three. I think what he's saying is at the resurrection, Jesus proclaimed victory over the forces of hell. He basically said, stuff you. Well, I don't know if exactly he said that. But it's kind of like the victor has won. He has risen from the dead. And Jesus now turns to the spirit world who has stood against him ever since they rebelled before creation began. And he has declared his victory over them. That's what I think this passage is saying. So let me unpack that a little bit more for us. Coming back to the questions. Where did Jesus go? Answer, I don't know. Because we're not told. It says he went. It doesn't say he went down. Doesn't say he went up. Doesn't say he went to McDonald's. Doesn't say he went anywhere. It just says he went. So where did he go? I don't know. When did he go there? At, his re- at or after his resurrection? Because that's already been referenced in verse 18. To whom did Jesus speak? Who are the spirits? Some people say those are people. They are the people that Noah preached to long ago who are now in Hades or hell or some holding place waiting for, for, for judgment. I don't think they're people. I think they are demonic forces. And that's because the word that Peter uses here, I don't think by itself can reference human beings. Peter Davids, who's I think one of the, probably written the best commentary on this book, says spirits in the New Testament, like spirits as a word, always refers to non-human spiritual beings unless qualified. So unless there's another word or another phrase that helps you understand he's talking about the spirits of people, if it's just spirits by itself, Peter Davids is saying that's normally talking about angelic 
or demonic beings. So I think that's who Peter, uh, sorry, who Jesus proclaims to. And what did he proclaim? The NIV's gone, he went and made proclamation. I don't know why they didn't just put, he went and proclaimed. That would make more sense to me. Um, but the word there for proclaimed, it's one word, um, sometimes in the New Testament it means to preach the good news, to announce the gospel of grace. But in Peter, the four times that Peter will write in this letter about sharing the gospel, he uses another word for that. And so I think here, Peter's not using this word proclaim, meaning to proclaim the gospel, but to make an announcement. So I believe because it's at the resurrection and because Jesus is speaking to the spirit world, to, 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 to angels or demons, not humans, I think what Jesus is doing is announcing his victory. He's not proclaiming the gospel, sharing good news with, with demons that they can now trust in him. No, they had their chance. What he is doing is he is announcing his victory over them because at the cross, Satan and his demons thought they had won. They had slain God in the flesh. They thought victory was theirs. And at the resurrection, Jesus turns around and says, sorry, boys, you lose. I have conquered sin and death and the grave and hell. And no matter what happens between now and when, when I, until I wrap up human history, you lose. I am the victor over death and sin and Hades. That's what this passage is about. That at his resurrection, Jesus announced his victory over the demonic forces. Peter David sums up this passage this way. Thus it seems likely that this passage in 1 Peter refers to a proclamation of judgment. I actually think victory would be better there. By the resurrected Christ to the imprisoned spirits, that is these fallen angels, sealing their doom as he triumphed over sin and death and hell, redeeming human beings. That's what he's doing. So in other words, Jesus died, verse 18, as our perfect substitute. Now Peter says, Jesus rose as our triumphant saviour. Now, I could have written there, he rose as our triumphant conqueror, because that's really the idea Peter's going for in verse 19. But Peter goes on and makes another point now in verses 20 and 21, which points to this idea of saviour. So, again, if you've still got this in front of you, come with me. Verse 20, he's been talking about Noah, and when the ark was being built, so midway through verse 20, in it, which is in the ark, Noah's ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, what on earth is Peter saying? Because it sounds like what he just said is that baptism saves you. So two weeks ago, we had a nightlife gathering, and three of our teenagers were baptised, uh, Jordan and Anna and Gideon. I had the privilege of, of baptising Gideon. So was Gideon saved two weeks ago when I dunked him under the water and brought him back up again? The answer is no, just in case you were wondering. Gideon, just in case you were too. The Bible is very clear, isn't it? We are saved by our faith, our trust in Jesus. 
I mean, the watermark passage that many of you will know well from Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's not our good deeds. It's not our church attendance. It's not our reading the Bible. It's not our giving money to the church or to charities. It's not anything we do that saves us. It is not by being baptized. It is not by going to confession. It is not by taking communion that we are saved. We are saved by putting our faith and trust in Jesus alone. Full stop, nothing else. So whatever Peter means... He doesn't mean that being dunked in a tub of water saves you. So what does he mean? Let me put this passage up again, and I want to highlight two things. First of all, I want you to notice the words that I've put in italics in brackets. Because right after he says, uh, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you, Right after that, he then makes this parenthesis comment, which is why I put it in brackets. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. So in other words, Peter immediately qualifies what he's just said. He says, baptism saves you, but I don't mean, I don't mean getting dunked in water. It's not the washing of your body that saves you. Rather, he said, it's the pledge, I would prefer the appeal of a clear conscience towards God. What he means by that is faith. He's saying what saves you is not the actual dunking of baptism, it's what baptism points to, which is your faith in God. It's the appeal that you make to God with a clear conscience that you can come to him, pray to him, Call him Abba, Father, because of what Jesus has done. You've put your faith in Jesus. That's what Peter means. So he's talking about what baptism points to, which is our faith in Jesus. Before I baptized Gideon, during that week before, I met with him and talked with him and heard his story about how he had come to the moment where he had placed his faith for himself in Jesus. When I baptized him that night, I asked him again publicly, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior? And he said, yes. And then I say the words, it's on the confession of your faith I baptize you. It's the faith that saves us. And baptism, Peter says, is a pointer to that. All right, so that's, that's what he means in the brackets. The other thing I want you to notice is what I've highlighted in yellow. Because Peter here is making a comparison from the Noah story to you and me. And it's through the words, saved through. So he's gone back to the story of Noah and says, in the ark, eight people, Noah and his wife and his sons and his daughters-in-law, eight of them, they were saved through water. And you're going, well, hold, I thought they were saved by being in the boat. And they were, but what he's doing is he's saying that ark saved them because it floated on top of the water. If you stop and think about the story of Noah, the floodwaters were both at the same time an act of judgment against wickedness for those who rejected God, but at the same time it was those same floodwaters that carried the ark and saved those people. So the floodwaters were both 
God's judgment against the wicked and at the same time God's salvation for those who trusted in him. All right? So now he does this. Come down to verse, the end of verse 21. Baptism, or what baptism symbolizes, saves you through, same word, saves through the resurrection of Jesus. What he's saying is this. In just the same way as in Noah's day, those floodwaters meant judgment for those who rejected God, but at the same time salvation for those who trusted him, so the resurrection of Jesus proclaims judgment on those who reject him like those fallen angels. And at the very same time, the resurrection means salvation for those who trust in him. That's the comparison. So what he's saying is the resurrection is when Jesus declared his victory over the demonic world. But at the same time, for those who have trusted in Jesus and been baptized, the resurrection is our salvation. Because without the resurrection, we can't be saved. It's the death of Jesus that pays for our sins, but it's the resurrection of Jesus that guarantees that payment was fully made and fully accepted to God. See, that's what baptism is symbolizing. This is the way Paul described it in Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. That's why when we do baptism here and a number of other denominations and churches do as well, we baptize by immersion. Because sprinkling, I don't think, captures this picture. Two weeks ago, when I baptized Gideon, I dunked him right under a spa pool of water. And so the, symbol, the symbolism is he, was, he died and he was buried just like Jesus. And then I didn't leave him under the water, thankfully. I lifted him back out again, which is the symbolism of rising to a whole new life. See, that's what baptism symbolizes. It's not just death. It's resurrection to a whole new life. And that's the two points Peter's making in these tough passages, tough verses about the resurrection. He's saying two things. At the resurrection, first of all, Jesus triumphed over evil. That's the proclamation to the spirits. At the very same time at the resurrection, Jesus guaranteed our salvation. And that's what baptism symbolizes. That we can be sure that we are forgiven and saved and secure forever if we've trusted in him because he rose again. And so that's what Peter's saying. I love this. Romans 4, just jump to the end, verse 25 at the bottom. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, but he was raised to life for our justification. See, it's both the death and resurrection of Jesus that saves us, that guarantees our salvation. That's why Paul will write to the church in Corinth, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised, and if Christ isn't raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. It is futile. You're still in your sins. Jesus had to rise again. But because Jesus rose again, not only has he declared absolute victory over Satan and all his demons, he is also guaranteed your salvation and my salvation and our relationship with God by grace, both in this life 
and in the life to come forever and ever. That's what Peter's saying. Jesus died as our perfect substitute. And Jesus rose as our triumphant saviour. And then he concludes it in verse 22, which is thankfully a whole lot easier to understand when he says Jesus is enthroned as our exalted king. See, that's what he says, verse 22, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers and submission to him. See, he underlines it one more time. In fact, in the way that, that Peter wrote this in the original text, what he actually reads, we, uh, our English translation switch the two lines because logically it makes more sense. What Peter actually writes is this. Jesus Christ is at God's right hand, having gone into heaven. And the emphasis is that he is enthroned in the place of power and authority and exaltation over all. He died he rose, and he is exalted and enthroned forever and ever. Which is exactly what the scriptures proclaim again and again. Paul writing in Philippians 2, this says, Therefore God highly exalted him to the highest place and has given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, notice this, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, which I think means angelic and human and demonic. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the risen and enthroned Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what this passage is teaching. Now, having got that, we need to come back to that little word at the very beginning of verse 18. For. Because. See, the reason that Peter is saying and reminding his readers, Jesus died as our perfect substitute and he rose as our triumphant saviour and he's now enthroned as our exalted king is because Jesus is an example to us because Christ did this. So let us come back. Read verse 17 from last week and then look at the example of Jesus. Peter wrote last week, it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Why is it better to suffer for doing good? Because Christ also suffered. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit and he has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers and submission to him. See, back in chapter two, Peter called on slaves to be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus and then pointed to Jesus and said, look, he's the example of how to suffer well. Now what he's doing is he's saying to all of us, be prepared to suffer for the name of Jesus. Be prepared to be ridiculed because you're a Christian. Be prepared to be even persecuted for that. Why? He points again to Jesus, but now not only as an example of how to suffer well, but as an example that suffering is not the end of the story. Jesus didn't just suffer. Jesus rose. And Jesus is now exalted to the highest place. And that is the pathway for all of us. If we suffer now for the cause of Jesus, that's not the end of the story. 
Because the pathway of suffering, because we walk it with Jesus, ends in vindication and glory and exaltation and reigning with Jesus forever and ever and ever. If we suffer now a little bit, that's okay, is what Peter's saying. Living good lives will be worth it in the end. How do we know? Because Jesus is risen and enthroned, and he's won. So if we have to suffer a little bit now, it doesn't matter. Because in the end, we're on the winning team. We've hitched our wagon to the winner, the conqueror, the king. So you know what? Suffer if you have to suffer, Peter says. Because when we look at the example of Jesus, we realize where that path of suffering will lead us. To glory, to heaven, to home. I love the way Juan Sanchez summarizes this. Why is it better to suffer for doing good rather than evil? Because Jesus has already walked the road marked with righteous suffering and it's a pathway to his vindication and his glory. So we can walk the same road, can't we? If that's where it's going to end. That's the point Peter's making. Jesus suffered and died. But that wasn't the end. Jesus rose and now he's enthroned. And if we suffer a little bit, not nearly what he did, understand we're going to walk the same road and we're going to enjoy eternity with the one who is enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what he said. As we finish, I want to bring three applications to three different groups of people using the three parts of this story. Number one, Jesus died. And I want to just say something to those of you who may be sitting here at Botany or watching this in Hastings or listening to this on the internet. If you have not taken the step of trusting in Jesus for yourself, I want you to hear what Peter says. He paid the penalty of your sin as your substitute. When he was dying on the cross, he suffered physically, sure. But the real suffering of Jesus was that he actually paid the penalty of your sin. The Father poured out all of his holy wrath against sin, your judgment onto Jesus. And so now, the way's open. Jesus suffered, Peter said in verse 18, to bring us to God. And God now holds out to you the offer of a relationship with him forever. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to perform good deeds. You don't have to clean your life up. You need to simply acknowledge how broken and sinful and rebellious you are and accept this gift of life that Jesus offers you by giving him your life. And whether you're here at Botany or in Hastings or or, or listening to this on the internet, if you've never actually taken that step, maybe you're here checking this out, maybe you, you've, you've grown up in the church hearing this, but as you sit and listen to me now, you realize you've never actually taken that personal step of faith for yourself. I want to invite you to do that now. The very beginning of this series, I put up this prayer. And I want to just pray these words now out loud. And if you've never 
taken this step of faith and you want to do that, wherever you are, I want to invite you just to pray these words with me. You don't have to pray them out loud. You can just pray them in your heart. But I want to give you this opportunity now. Lord Jesus, I confess today that I am a sinner. I realize today that my life is empty and I need you. Thank you that you died on the cross in my place and took the full punishment for my sins. Today, I choose to place my faith in you as my saviour and my rescuer. Set me free from my sins and my empty way of life. Help me live for you, I pray. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer this morning at Botany, I'd love for you to come and talk with me after the service. If you've prayed that prayer at Hastings, I'd love for you to sit down with Harataki or Shona. If you're listening to this over the internet, I'd love you to email us and just let us know you've taken that step. Second group of people I want to talk to is based on this resurrection idea and this idea that, that baptism is the symbol of that. Because there's a good number of people who are followers of Jesus but who actually haven't taken that step of being baptised. And a few of the commentators I was reading this week made this a very simple point. Peter would never have comprehended of an unbaptized Christian. Because in the New Testament, they just went together. You just trusted in Jesus and you just got baptized straight away. It just it happened all the time. And that often isn't how it happens in our world. Now, I, became, I got brought up in a Christian family. Many of you might be in the same case. I trusted in Jesus around the age of 10, but it wasn't until I was in my late teens that I got baptized. Part of that was I wanted to kind of figure this out for myself, which is fine, because sometimes when you're raised in the church, you need to make sure you understand this and own this. But part of that was a wrong idea that I thought I needed to get my life sorted out and, and be really fervent for God and on fire, somehow to be worthy of baptism, and that's completely wrong. You don't have to have your life all together. In the New Testament, people believed and they just got baptized straight away. It's, it's simply a symbol of your faith. And I actually just want to lovingly put the challenge out. If you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized by immersion as a believer, I think that's the core of the scriptures. And so I want to put that challenge out. We're going to do another nightlife gathering next term. I'd love to baptize half the church if that's what it takes. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, I want to lovingly encourage you to give that some thought. Third group of people I want to talk to based on the ascension that Jesus has enthroned is those who are suffering for his name. That may be as simple as if you're a high school student and you're being pushed aside or laughed at because you're a Christian. It can be as simple as, as being ostracized in, in a group of friends and left out because you don't engage in what everyone else engages in at, at parties. It could be being laughed at at your workplace when you choose to just drop in a comment about your faith in, in Christ. Or it could be as harsh as being persecuted or even thrown into prison for the cause of Christ. That doesn't happen in this country. But in April, I sat with 30 outstanding men and women, leaders in Nepal, who told me that's what they're enduring 
right now, persecuted, imprisoned for their faith in Jesus. And if some of you are listening to this today, in Nepal, or in China, or India, or Saudi Arabia, or countless other countries, Peter is saying, keep going. Live for him. Honor him. Serve him. Live a good life for Jesus. Because it is worth it in the end. How do we know? Because Jesus didn't just die. He rose. And he is now enthroned, victorious and exalted over all. Live good lives because it's worth it in the end. As the band comes back up to lead us in some closing worship. This morning at our service of Botany, we've got communion on these tables. And as we close with a couple of songs, I simply want to invite you, as you'd like to, to just come and take these, these little simple symbols that Jesus gave us, a little piece of bread, a little cup of, of juice, that really are just little tokens that Jesus wanted us to use to remind us again and again, not only that he died as our substitute and his body was broken and his, and, and his blood was poured out for us, but also that he rose again. And we can take these elements in celebration of the victory that he has won for us. And the beautiful thing is there is a day coming when we will never, ever do communion again. Because Jesus said, do this until I come. One day he will return. The king will part the clouds and re-enter human history. And you and I will never do communion again. Because our faith will give way to sight. And the bread will give way to his body and his pierced hands. And we will be with him forever. But in the meantime, this is our memorial. Let's worship him today. Let's celebrate him, the one who died and rose and is enthroned forever and ever. Thanks, guys. Let's